Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 302 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the recent Marvel movie Black Panther, directed by Ryan Coogler. And this won't involve spoilers for everything in the movie, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Evan Narsis. He's written about video games, comic books, and pop culture for io9, Kotaku, Time, and Techland. And he's currently writing the Rise of the Black Panther comic for Marvel. So Evan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, David. Then next up, we've got Tanana Reevedu. Her novels include Blood Colony, Joplin's Ghost, and My Soul to Take. And her short story collection, Ghost Summer, won the 2016 British Fantasy Award. She teaches classes on Afrofuturism and Black Horror at UCLA, and you should also check out her online Afrofuturism class over at afrofuturismwebinar.com. So, Tanina Reeve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very excited to be here. And also joining us today is Jesse J. Holland. He's a race and ethnicity reporter for the Associated Press, whose books include Star Wars The Force Awakens, Finn's Story, and The Invisibles, The Untold Story of African-American Slavery Inside the White House. His latest novel, Who is the Black Panther, is out now from Marvel. So, Jesse, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, and so as we're recording this, Black Panther has made over a billion dollars, and it just became the most tweeted about movie of all time. So let's start with Evan and have you tell us, why do you think this movie has become the most tweeted about movie of all time? I think there was uh, decades of anticipation on parts of uh, certain parts of the fan base um, of, uh, in terms of people who love Black Panther. You know, uh, some of us have been waiting for this movie for decades. Um, some people have been waiting for it for a, a shorter period of time, but with, um, an increased passion, um, dr- driven by seeing what Marvel has accomplished with their cinematic universe. Um, so, uh, you know, I feel like you, there was, there was people who just couldn't wait for this to happen. There's a lot of tweets about, uh, the background of the character, you know, um, um, interesting, um, tidbits about, uh, Wakanda and T'Challa, stuff that people didn't necessarily know. So there was people generally getting each other hyped up for the movie. And I feel like that became something like a perpetual motion machine, um, that, that basically took on a life of its own. I feel like, um, Disney itself didn't have to market the movie as much as they would have maybe some other, um, adaptations because the fan base was already energized and, 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 and hungry for this. Yeah. How about Tanana Reeve? Do you want to add anything to that about why is there so much discussion around this movie? Yeah, I'm kind of a latecomer. I will admit I may be the only one on the panel who was not a comics reader per se. I was the sort of the typical new Marvel fan who came in through the Iron Man movies. And I've always been a big Iron Man fan. But I have to say there was nothing like the level of excitement I felt when T'Challa... Um, and even, you know, Florence Kasumba and the Dora Milaje were first introduced in Civil War. It was like, yeah, I had gone to all the movies and I enjoyed them and the Avengers were, that was good. <laughs> but when Black Panther showed up, it was like spraying, a light bulb went off and I had to go back and watch the entire run, even the ones I had skipped, you know, I had, I, just to see a glimpse of vibranium. And I think that a lot of the viewers were like me. I mean, some of them maybe even hadn't watched that many Marvel, as many as I had before. Um, Black Panther. So two years ago, 
when uh, someone on Twitter at BP so lit started the hashtag Black Panther so lit, we could see that excitement, you know, that Evan was talking about. It was it's just uh, with the the fantasies of the clothes we would wear, which actually, by the way, came true. <laughs> we did dress up. Um, some people, maybe there weren't church dinners in the lobbies and maybe people weren't marching in formation exactly, but that was the feeling that we had just from the glimpse of T'Challa in Civil War and then the casting news of Lupita. It was like, oh, wait, they're going to really do this. I mean, we could just tell. Not only was it so exciting to see yourself represented on screen, but it was going to be done right. We could tell that just from the casting news um, and Ryan Coogler directing and the list goes on. So, yes. Uh, those of us who have been screaming, I have a dedicated Black Panther column on my tweet deck <laughs> that I, that I, that I've had since the day the trailer dropped and it, constant chatter, constant, constant, constant new people, uh, people who've been waiting their whole lives. My husband who read it as a teenager and, and saw the first comic. I mean, there's just so much cultural anticipation that no, we are, we're not the least bit surprised. <laughs> And how it's come out. Well, well. So when you say that um, you could tell that this was they were going to do it right, or this is actually going to happen, could you expand on what exactly you mean by that? Well, just because Lupita is African, you know, um, there are so many accommodations that are that are made in Hollywood, and obviously Chadwick Boseman is not African, but just that they were actually going to cast it with people who looked African was exciting, you know. And let's just start at that basic level. Um, that there would be strong women in the film, period. Because, you know, we're we're looking for hints of what to come. And it's not just T'Challa. Now, all of a sudden, what? It's Denai Guerrero. It's like, oh, my goodness. So it was just this care, I guess, uh, we could see unfolding, whether it was in the casting um, snippets, the little teeny bits of snippets we could see of the visuals. It, it was clear that the filmmakers we're on a mission. It's not just, oh, we're, you know, here's a comic book movie. It's an actual mission to make up for that lost time. Hmm. I mean, Jesse, let's get you in here. Do you want to say about why you think people were so excited about this movie? Or do you agree that there's a sense of mission behind this movie? Well, I, I agree with everything that everyone else has said, but I will also add in that we're also in a time in entertainment in America where we're looking for something beyond the same old brunette or blonde white hero. And the Black Panther hit that spot that we've all been waiting for for so long uh, in this country where uh, we've been shown in adventure movies that the Black guy is the sidekick, is the support staff, is the scientist, is the muscle guy. We, we're finally being shown a movie where the brown-skinned character is the hero, the unquestioned hero of the piece. And not only the unquestioned hero of the piece, but the support staff, but the smart person, but and the <laughs> villain all at the same time. We're being shown this beautiful brown cast, and it, it we've been waiting for this for I don't know how long. Well, so talk about what was it like, uh, just as an experience, what was it like watching the movie the first time? Like, where were you? Who were you with? That kind of stuff. Well, I actually got to see the movie in uh, Manhattan with a bunch of Marvel employees. I actually, I live in DC and so I actually trained, uh, took the Amtrak up to uh, Manhattan with my wife and turned it into a date night at, at, at the Marvel screening. And man, was I blown away. 
uh, immediately after seeing it, I was like, you know what? Uh, when can we see it again? <laughs> and I then went back to see it again. I saw it in, in Manhattan on Monday and in Washington, D.C. again on Thursday. Uh, and people were coming in with in, in their African gear. And, and let me just say, it wasn't just black people wearing African gear. There were a couple of white guys in there in dashikis as well. That's when I knew how big this movie was going to be. <laughs> Well, how about uh, Evan and um, Tanana Reeve? You guys saw the premiere, right? Yes, I'll jump in first because I can barely contain myself. <laughs> I'm literally grinning from ear to ear just thinking about it. So out of the blue, I got a tweet from a reporter for another uh, publication, <laughs> Anthony Bresnikan, who, uh, who said, yeah, you may have plans. Would you like to come to the premiere? And he so he invited me to the Hollywood premiere just because I'd been tweeting about it. And he felt that he had learned um, about Afrofuturism. Uh, you know, of which Black Panther is now the centerpiece <laughs> uh, in terms of what is Afrofuturism. Okay, it looks like Black Panther. Uh, so he invited me and it was honestly, uh, tough to leave my husband behind because, like I said, he read the original appearance of Black Panther in the Fantastic Four. Like he was there at Ground Zero and, uh, here I get to go to the premiere <laughs> with another guy, no less. <laughs> so he was really sweet about that. Um, but it was like a, a Cinderella experience from the Dora Milaje uh, models who were there uh, near the purple carpet, the big Black Panther head to give the impression that you're actually walking into Wakanda. And then after locking down my phone, so I couldn't take a single selfie, literally having conversations with Ava DuVernay and I mean, all these, you know, it's a ray, like exchanging words with all of not just Black Hollywood, though. All of Hollywood seemed to be there. I didn't see Evan, unfortunately. But some, I mean, David Oyelowo and, uh, I mean, just everybody was there. Everybody was excited. Saw Stan Lee wheeled into the theater. So that it's just like this snapshot of history that, that he got to see, uh, this film that, that was so important to him personally. Um, and the cast on the stage. And in terms of the film itself, um, there were, I've described it as several moments of just like going, falling down. You know, you go to the top of a roller coaster and then you fall like that moment of like, whoa. And I had that sensation, uh, so many times when I realized, oh, they're going there. Oh, they're doing that. You know, from some of the dialogue that don't scare me, colonizer to flying into Wakanda to the war rhinos. I mean, there were just these, these very specific, like, boom, boom moments where I felt myself transported, almost like I was flying into the film myself, which is a rare uh, experience for me. Just a delight. Just a delight for every sense. Uh, the soundtrack, the, the, the film, the acting, the costumes. It's, I'm still just floating. <laughs> well, so how about Evan? What was the premiere experience like for you? Yeah, similar to... Um... Tanana Reeve, I was uh, invited by a friend of mine to be there plus one. Um, originally, I'd been in L.A. for different reasons. Um, Sci-Fi invited me out to do a video shoot for a Black Panther, Black History Month package they were doing. And I was supposed to leave the Friday before the premiere. Um, but a fr my friend told me, uh, don't be stupid. You're staying <laughs> in L.A. and you're coming with me. Uh, so I bought some fancy going to premiere clothes. and um, was there on that Monday night. Uh, um, and, you know, really not ready for like the whole experience. It's my first Hollywood movie premiere, um, despite being an entertainment journalist for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, the pageantry of it, 
Like you want to tell yourself that you're, you're, you're jaded and cynical and that's not going to get to you, but like it totally got to me. Um, and then like two rows behind me is Lawrence Fishburne, uh, an actor who I've always loved my entire life. And, um, I, I know, uh, from, from following his career that he's a big nerd, comic nerd as well. So we talked a little bit and I, I congratulate him on his role and Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, and uh, I told him I was writing a Black Panther series, and he congratulated me, which was wild. I was like, "What? What? What? What business do you have congratulating me? Who feels like you know a speck um, uh, compared to to what this man has accomplished?" But he told me how uh, he used to steal comic books back in the day um, so he could read them, so he can get his fix. Uh, and I thought that I was like, "That's that's that's dedication." <laughs> um, um, but yeah, the movie itself blew me away. Like. You know, I, I knew I had like multiple, multiple vectors of vulnerability. Um, but I was still not prepared to like start crying, like literally at the first line of the movie. Um, um, and it, it, you know, I was surprised at how political the story was. Um, uh, they, they really blew me away with how, you know, topical it was with regards to, um, how it embedded its meta narrative of, um, Exploring one's own blackness and black identity. Um, that, that was basically the text of the movie. I mean, there was a whole superhero stuff and royal intrigue, but it was basically about, okay, this man doesn't have a connection to his past and look what it's done to him. Um, talking about Killmonger, of course. Um, and T'Challa's own connection to his past is not necessarily what he thought it was. Um, um, and he has to uh, uh, figure out how to move, um, those tensions, resolve those tensions and move Wakanda into the future. Uh, so it was really amazing. But the best part for me was, again, another bit of happenstance. Um, somebody I knew at Marvel, um, was not going to the after party and let me, uh, um, use her, her wristband to get in. Um, and that's when, like, things just kicked off to another level. Like, uh, I got to talk to Don Cheadle and Donald Glover. And, but most important to me was, was, um, Getting able to run down some of my favorite comic book uh, creators who worked on this uh, character, so I got to talk to Christopher Priest, who's like a an icon of mine, um, uh, the first full time uh, black uh, editor and writer at Marvel MDC, who, who wrote a um, legendary run of Black Panther comics that started in 1998. I gave him a big hug. I was holding back tears, and I, I've met and interviewed Priest before, but. You know, I feel like I probably scare him at this point because there's always so much, so so much emotion that comes out when I talk to him. But um, I talked to him. I uh, Dennis Cohen, um, who was a artist who did a series, um, I want to say in 2007 with Reginald Hudlin, um, a Black Panther series, and who was one of the founding creators of Milestone Media, um, a, a legendary imprint of of um, multiracial superheroes, um. You know, I got to talk to people like him and, you know, seeing them there in that moment, um, right when this, 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 you know, runaway train, um, when, when a runaway vibranium train was about to like take over the whole world was really amazing. Like it was good to see, uh, actual comics creators, um, be, be part of that moment. And myself as a newbie comics creator, which is so weird. I don't include myself in these kind of things because in my head it's still, so new, but um, it felt like good to be somebody who's contributing to the lore of this character, um, uh, being able to be there. Well, right. Why don't you say a little bit more about your own role as a comics creator? How did that come about, and sort of what have you done so far? Yeah, so um, I'm, you know, I'm a freshman comics creator who's coming out 
um, with some uh, really advantageous timing. Um, you know, uh, I'm writing a series called Rise of the Black Panther for Marvel Comics, and I like to say that it occupies the same notional space as a movie. It's basically T'Challa um, uh, deciding to introduce Wakanda to the world and what happens when the world finds out. Um, so uh, while there's some similarities to the movie, um, um, I also like to say that I got to use all the toys, you know. Um, so in issue two, uh, I get to have Namor the Submariner show up, and he's a king, and T'Challa's a king, and they kind of get to butt heads and then team up in classic Marvel style. Issue three, the Winter Soldier shows up, and, you know, uh, there's a little bit of espionage um, um, in that issue. Uh, issue four, it, coming out on April 4th, is going to have Doctor Doom. So I get to, you know, use these characters to explore T'Challa's response to the world um, now knowing about Wakanda. Uh, and this all came about because um, of my work as a journalist and a critic. I um, interviewed Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, about his run on the Black Panther, the main series, um, and his editor, Will Moss, uh, uh, said, hey, Evan really seems to know his stuff. Do you think he'd be interested um, um, in writing a Black Panther project for us? And I thought about it and ran it by my bosses and got, you know, the appropriate clearances and stuff, and um, um, it, it became a thing. I mean, uh, I should, you know, uh, not be remiss in mentioning that Tanahasi and I have known each other for years. Um, but, uh, you know, I feel like it was really when I sat down with Will Moss at Marvel and talked about my ideas for the run where he decided to give it a shot. Yeah, that's really, really cool. And I mean, Jesse, you're also doing an officially licensed um, Black Panther story, right? You want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, um, I wish I I wish I could say I'm part of the the, the comic book side of the panther but uh i'm more i'm on the prose side so i ended up writing the the first pro adult prose novel for the panther which is called black panther who is the black panther which is a retelling of the 2005 uh reginald hudlin um uh, uh, origin for the black panther uh i've been writing uh for about well like, geez about 10 years now but i started out writing in creative nonfiction. Uh, so in 2016, I had written a book called The Invisibles, The Untold Story of African-American Slavery in the White House. And I was lucky enough that an editor at Lucasfilm Books read The Invisibles and she loved it. Uh, so she called me in, uh, 2016 and said, Hey, you know, Star Wars The Force Awakens just came out. And there's this character called Finn in the, in the movie, if you haven't seen it. And we need somebody to write uh, um, a little bit for Finn's background. Uh, and so she called me and she asked me, why would I be interested in doing this? And I told her, of course, I love Star Wars. So I ended up writing for Lucasfilm Books, uh, the book uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens, Finn's story. So just as soon as Finn's story came out, I get a call from Marvel. Who, and this is still in 2016. And they say, well, yeah, we just read Finn's story and we love what you did with it. And there's going to be a Black Panther movie coming out in a couple of years. And we want someone to, uh, take the Black Panther origin and write it in prose form and update it from 2000, the Reginald Hudlin series from 2005. And would you be interested in doing this? And of course, like being a long time comic book guy, I've been reading comic books since I was, 
five or six years old. I immediately jumped on it and I said, I would love to do it. And, uh, and it immediately set, set out to, to get to work because I had actually had a tight deadline on the Panther novel, which ended up being somewhere between 85,000, uh, 90,000 words. They wanted it turned around in about six months. So, uh, I immediately had to get to work and, and get on getting it done, but it was such, such a great, great joy to do because I had all of the Panther comic books already in my basement. Marvel <laughs> he offered, offered to send me some stuff for research and I, and I told him, never mind. I already got them in my basement. I'll just pull out my boxes and pull them out the Mylar covers and just read them again. So, uh, it, it, it ended up turning out to be a, a pretty great project. Well, yeah, and that, that deadline does sound really tight, but it sounds like you're really busy with all sorts of stuff, right? So it's not like you could even just devote yourself full-time for those six months to this book, right? You had to juggle a bunch of other things, I'm guessing. Oh, of course. I, I still work full-time as a journalist for the Associated Press. In fact, the only reason why I'm home today is because of the seven inches of snow <laughs> outside my house right now. Um, but, but no, it, it, I do most of my writing at night, and so that, 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 uh, that meant that I had a, a few sleepless nights getting it done, but the final project I'm just in love with. Yeah, yeah. Well, so Tanana Reef, you mentioned that Black Panther is an example of Afrofuturism. Could you just talk about the, the new movie in terms of how is it Afrofuturism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it really is a portrait of Afrofuturism. Really, now you can call it the Black Speculative Arts Movement, as some people do. It's the science fiction, fantasy, and yes, horror of the African diaspora, but it's not just literary. So Afrofuturism is both movement and art forms in terms of music, like, um, let's say Sun Ra, Miles Davis had some jazz fusion that I would consider Afrofuturism. Janelle Monet is very much an Afrofuturist. George Clinton, of course, with the mothership. If you look at Beyonce and the imagery and her, uh, especially her Grammys performance when she had Lemonade, that's like, oh, goddesses, myth, uh, part future, part past, um, and really always about the present. So what we're doing is pushing boundaries, but most importantly, populating ourselves in both the past and future. So when you look at even the Black Panther trailers, you could see the Afrofuturism bursting off the screen because here you have this sort of very rustic, traditional uh, looking uh, and traditional costuming, say, juxtaposed with what looks like a, a flying spacecraft uh, and the technology to to hide Wakanda and, and the sky party, you know, and that kind of stuff. So it's the futurism and the tradition because there's been so much erasure of not just, say, an African-American presence, but an African presence in history, that that's why in envisioning the future, we also have to claim and gather and collect the past and bring that with us too, uh, which is what was part of what was so exciting for me. So yeah, we I, I've been teaching Afrofuturism at UCLA um, for a couple years now, and, and horror is a subset of that uh, with some some very different aims, but it really is black artists expressing, frankly, their inner geek, you know? Uh, yeah, we, we get to be in the future. Um, we, we get to be, uh, we're inventors, we're scientists. So Shuri is like, yes, that's Afrofuturism. Uh, there was a fake wired cover, um, <laughs> that, that an artist, oh, does anybody know the name of the artist? Cause I'll have to look it up, but there's an artist on Twitter 
um, who, who did this fake wired cover of Shuri, um, on the cover as, as sort of leading into the future, which she absolutely does. And it's so, so important, uh, for, young black people when you see people buying movie theaters out for kids a lot of people have never heard of afrofuturism or they've been they like science fiction but they there haven't been enough programs or movies or they thought literature that included black people for them to even consider that such a thing existed so that's what's so exciting about black panther because um it's hard to imagine the impact of having been erased uh, early science fiction films, obviously made in the fifties, pretty much excluded black characters. And if there were black characters, then you could sort of cringe at the kinds of roles, uh, that black actors would, would get in the forties and thirties and, and whatnot. But in science fiction in particular, we just weren't present. I mean, famously in the original Star Wars, which has been remedied, but you know, go back to 1977. Um, there's no malice intended in that. It's just, you know, that was just sort of the way things were done and people have to go out of their way to find black talent. And, and it doesn't occur to a lot of people or it didn't until recently. So it's like we weren't, we're not in the past. Westerns don't show that the old West was probably about 25% black. Um, so we're erased from the past in cinema and we're erased from the future. It doesn't make you feel really good about your prospects. <laughs> so Afrofuturism is that imagination of exploration, whether it's futurism, whether it's making uh, your own mythologies more widely known. There's just so, there's a lot to it. And yeah, so I've been teaching that and and my husband, Stephen Barnes, who's a a pioneering science fiction writer himself, um, also have a 10-week online webinar, as you mentioned. All right. Yeah, I'll give you the URL for that again. It's afrofuturismwebinar.com. Um, so if people have seen Black Panther and this is kind of their first exposure to Afrofuturism and they want to know what the next steps would be of sort of similar things that they should look into, what would some of those be? Well, um, you know, my webinar is one, but there are a lot of other resources out. In fact, uh, there's a middle school teacher whose name I'll try to pull up who did a fantastic job compiling uh, a middle school curriculum curriculum around Black Panther. Oh my goodness, where is it? I'm going to look it up, you know, while we're on the interview, because that's something I just pulled up myself as an educator and said, this is a fantastic resource. But do uh, nowadays, it's a Google search. Uh, with Afrofuturism and Black Panther, there are a lot of organizations, uh, scholars, uh, and, and institutions that have started putting up everything from um, STEM, you know, to, to reach out to, to the scientists uh, to, to literature, to film, uh, you, this is so much. Yeah. So do you want to, you want to, um, I'll come back to you and you can look up. Yeah. That. Come back to me. Sure. Yeah. I forgot your, yeah, I'll look it up. Um, well, and so, so Evan, I know you're really familiar, uh, as Jesse is with the whole history of the Black Panther character. Do you want to just talk about when you're watching this movie for people who aren't, um, you know, too familiar with the comics, like what in this movie is drawn from the comics and what is, invented new for this movie oh man so um you know the idea of wakanda um itself obviously was uh there from the very beginning of the black panthers um publishing history 1966 fantastic four number 52 um uh and uh written and drawn by stanley and jack kirby 
um, co-creators of the character in much of the Marvel Universe. Um, so Wakanda was there, and it's it's there as a country that is hidden and secret and um, um, never uh, been uh, interacted with by the outside world. Um, you know, other things like the war dogs, um, which are the agents that uh, um, operate in secret across the world, um, those were created by Christopher Priest, um, and they were called the Hatut Zarase, which is um, a made-up Wakandan um, language that means literally the dogs of war. So those characters were there. Um, most of the major characters um, were there in the comics. So Wakabi, Okoye, um, um, uh, Shuri, Mbaku, um, all long-standing characters from the comics. Um, you know, what's really interesting are the, are the things that weren't there in the comics. So, um, Njobu, um, T'Chaka's brother, um, played by Sterling Brown, was a character that they created for the movie. Um, as, as was, uh, you know, they kind of, um, rejiggered Zuri as a character as well. He's, he was always somebody who was the visor, who was close to the throne. Um, but he, um, wasn't, uh, he didn't play the same role in the comics as he did in the movie. Um, and that's, and that's a, a fun aspect of these adaptations. And you get to, um, represent the source material in a way that's fresh and different. And so even longtime fans like, like me, um, can be surprised when they're watching the movie. Um, so a lot of that stuff was, was there from the beginning. Um, and you know, I think it's a testament to the, um, uh, original, originally published material that, um, it is, so malleable, um, and yet can retain so much of its power. You know, Killmonger, um, is a character that was, uh, around since the 1970s. Um, but I really think that Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole, um, um, found a really great angle on him, um, that, uh, uh, explained why he would have such, you know, um, anger towards T'Challa. Um, um, in the comics, it wasn't really ever explained. I'm, I'm doing my bit to explain it now in the series, um, and, uh, why Killmonger decided that he hated T'Challa so much. Um, but, you know, in the movie, they did, they did their own thing, and I think it's, um, a really great example of building a, a character from the inside out psychologically so that it works within a fictional construct, but still has all this mer- metaphorical meaning in the real world. Right. There's a, a story arc called Panther's Rage. Is that right? Where the, um, the image of, um, the Black Panther being defeated and thrown off the waterfall is comes from that's right that's um a, a killmonger um doing that in panther's rage which was written by don mcgregor um it started in 1973 i believe um uh check me on that if, if i'm wrong um uh but yeah so moments like that are almost um shot for shot recreations um of of things that have been published in the comics before even like the war rhinos were references to multiple times in T'Challa's um, uh, publishing history. He's just had to take out take out a rhino because the, some artist and some writer thought it'd be a, a cool thing to do. So to see that show up in the climax in the movie was really great. It's like, oh, even the little throwaway things they 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 um, uh, they nod to and gesture at, and so that's great. Well, the the biggest change I saw from the comics of the movie was the death of T'Chaka. Because that's a major part of the Panthers' origin from the comic books. Uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Captain America Civil War, they killed off King T'Chaka with a bomb. But in almost every other iteration of the Black Panther mythos, T'Chaka is killed by Claw. 
So, so even before they got ready for the Black Panther movie, they had already changed a major part of the Black Panther mythos. I mean, and they tried to, 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 to do a connection in Black Panther with that by saying Claw provided some of the explosive, uh, a vibranium explosive that was used on the building to make that connection back to Claw as well. But, uh, that was, that was to me, that was one of the things that surprised me when I saw Captain America Civil War that they, killed King T'Challa's father in that movie when it's such an integral part of his origin story. I was surprised they didn't save that for the Black Panther movie itself. So, so Jesse, when you're working on these officially licensed Marvel products, were you, um, did you have any access to behind the scenes stuff with the movie to try to, to make it consistent or anything? Or were you just, you had to just write without knowing what was going to happen in the movie? Man, I tried my best to get them to show me something that was going on in the movie while I was writing. I was like, man, can I can I see a screenplay? Can I see some outtakes? They were like, Marvel was literally like, we want this to be completely separate from what they're doing in the movie. And we also want it be, to be completely separate from the ongoing comic books. We want this novel to stand alone. We want you to put your imprint, your personal imprint, on what the Hudlin origin was. So it can stand by itself as an introduction to the Marvel Universe for this character. So uh, I, I will admit that I was reading the ongoing Black Panther comic book as I was as I was writing, but I tried to be sure that I didn't take anything specifically from that, uh, that I was basing the, the, the main part of the work from Reginald Hudlin's work work and back back from 2005 uh but one of the things that was so cool is that when i saw that when that first trailer from black panther dropped i could see some of the same themes some of the same ideas reflected in the movie that i worked with with the in the novel that same ancestral plane that almost the same description of the ancestral plane exists in the novel that exists in, in, in the movie. And the first time I saw the movie, I mean, I, I, I nudged my wife when, when T'Challa went to the ancestral plane. like, this is in the book. This is in the book. This is in the book. <laughs> but in, in, in my novel, he actually meets Bast instead of his, his ancestors. So that, that was, the, that was the big change between the ancestral plane in my book and the ancestral plane in the movie. He didn't meet his father. He met his God. So, uh, but it, some, it, it's amazing that some of the exact same ideas, some of the same themes that showed up in the movie, uh, show up again in my, in my novel without knowing, without me having any idea of what the movie was going to be about. Now, when you say you were following along with the black, ongoing Black Panther comic, that's the, the Ta-Nehisi Coates, um, yep. arc, yep. right? And well, I was... mean, I, I was reading it just because I'm a fan. Yeah, and that was was that I got the impression that 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 arc influenced the movie. Is that is that correct? Well, I mean, I I would say that they, that they pulled from several of the great writers uh, to 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 pull the movie together from 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 Coates' writing, from Don McGregor, from Christopher Priest, from Reginald Hudlin. I mean, he had the entire breadth of the, the breadth and width of the Panther mythos to work from. And he, the, he pulled several of the great ideas and great scenes from everywhere and made it fit into one seamless narrative. Yeah. Some of, some of the stuff, uh, um, 
from Tanahasi's run, like the Kamoya beads are something that, right. uh, he and Brian Stelfreeze came up with together. Um, I think Tanahasi largely credits that to Brian, um, um, Brian Stelfreeze, who was the artist of the first, um, major story arc on Tanahasi's run. Um, you know, other stuff like, uh, the, the Dora Milaje obviously come from Christopher Priest. Um, and those ideas, uh, evolved under different writers as well. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, it's funny what Jesse mentions is like, you know, when you're working in parallel with different creators who are approaching this character and this mythos at the same time, um, it's parallel, but it's, it's walled off, right? Like I didn't know anything about what was happening in the movie, um, while I was working up, uh, Rise of the Black Panther. Um, and one of the things that was great was, um, my editor, Will Moss, he said to me after he saw the movie at a, at a Marvel staffer screening, uh, he said, Hey, you know, the Shuri that exists in the movie exists in the comics now because of you. Um, and it was a bit ironic because Shuri was the hardest character for me to figure out how to write when I was thinking about writing, um, Rise of the Black Panther because she was introduced in 2005 during the original Hudlin run. But, um, um, you know, I'd been reading T'Challa's adventures way before that. So, um, I didn't have like the, the same handle on her the way I did with T'Challa, like this kind of foundational understanding. So finally, I, I, the place where I landed was, well, if your brother just became the king and was acting, walking around acting all high and mighty, you'd have to you'd have to mess with him a little bit, hmm. um, um, a, a bit of sibling rivalry. So I combined that with the idea that um, while she she wasn't going to be queen um, um, right away, she would still be close to the throne and have access to all this top secret information. Um, so I said, let's make her a little bit of a spy, um, um, an intelli- intelligence operative. Um, um, and that leaned into um, her character as an adult, as it would be written by Hudlin and Mayberry, had a very James Bond-esque feel to, to it in those adventures. So, you know, I'm kind of seeding those different iterations of the character um, um, forwards and backwards at the same time. Um, and, you know, that's just me working with the continuity I've inherited, but also trying to make it make sense in terms of uh, a character's uh, personality development. Um, so that's really fun. Like, like, like Jesse said, you know, um, um, the, the Black Panther mythos has such strong thematic pillars that I feel like you're drawn to them as a creator, um, how it treats history, how it treats the present and Wakanda's engagement with the outside world with the backdrop of racism and colonialism and white imperialism. Um, those are things that I feel like, um, you can't resist the pull of them. Um, but finding your own angle, uh, uh, with how you treat those themes is, is what's, um, exciting and interesting about the work. Yeah. Okay. So I want to come back to Tanana Reeve. Did you, um, manage to track down the, the African? Yes. Yeah. I have an awesome answer now. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> when you go down the rabbit hole, that is Black Panther. Uh, there are a lot of different directions. Like if you're new and you're just so excited, I mean, obviously a lot of people will do, what I did and just watch all the other Marvel movies (laughs) so they could say, okay, is there anything else going on here that I missed that's relevant to Wakanda or the Black Panther? Every little scrap of, you know, Wakanda on the map or a mention of vibranium or obviously go through those comic runs. You know, I know I've ordered uh, some of those classic uh, Christopher Priest, Reginald Hudlund uh, comics. I already had the Ta-Nehisi Coates one. And there are new ones. Well, Nnedi Okorafor has written um, some, some Black Panther, uh, or at least Wakanda based comics and Roxanne Gay. So there's just that alone as a piece. Um, 
But then there, I think, is sort of the wider way to look at Black Panther, which has to do with both um, the legacy it represents in Afrofuturism and also the messaging inside the movie. So that middle school teacher I was talking about, Tess Razor, R-A-S-E-R, has put up something called Wakanda Curriculum. And if you Google Wakanda Curriculum, you'll find links to this curriculum that is, she says fifth through eighth grades, but depending on how much or little you know, it really is appropriate for for adults as well. Because we're not just talking about Afrofuturism. She has a section on that. But let's talk about the legacy of colonialism in Africa. What is it? Uh, what is the legacy of slavery in the Americas? That great divide. And much of what is fueling this passion, especially among African Americans. I mean, Africans have their own reasons for embracing Black Panther too. I mean, that's your, you know, traditional South African headpiece on the screen. That's your, you know, your heritage on the screen. But for, for African Americans, who were basically ripped from that continent and had that history literally stripped from them. Uh, of course, you're not discouraged to, to know your, your traditional languages. Of course, you have to forget. I mean, the, the, the histories were oral, so the storytellers died, and, and here we are with names that aren't even our names, and, and it just goes on and on and on. So to feel that sense of connection to Africa through an African-American or at least in a U.S., let's say, inspired project is so profound and so deep that for some people that rabbit hole is, let's learn more about uh, Africa. Maybe I have some some attitudes about Africans that I need to re-examine. I think a lot of African-Americans would be shocked to learn, for example, that African immigrants are the most financially uh, successful immigrants of all other groups. Because we have stereotypes, uh, because we were raised here, of what Africans are and really have no clue uh, who Africans are in some way. So so that's one level of just who are some of these African writers, like Anetti Okorafor, who's also a prolific novelist in addition to, to writing for Marvel. There's just a big, big, wide world of literature, cinema, music, and I think most especially history. I cannot stress that history piece enough. So if you, if, if a viewer wants to understand why Shuri said, don't scare me like that colonizer <laughs> and if, and why that's more than just a joke and what that actually means about the history of Africa, uh, then, then there is a, a lot of information waiting for you. Well, so you talked earlier about how watching the movie for the, for the first time, you just had sort of the sense of vertigo that you couldn't believe some of the things that it was doing. And I certainly agree with that. And I just I was really surprised by some of the politics in the movie that um, the the part where Killmonger is talking to the museum curator and particularly um, Killmonger's death monologue. Uh, I just I, had my yes. jaw on the floor that they <laughs> – could put that in a movie. You know, they got away with putting that kind of stuff in the movie like this. It's like, oh, we're talking about that. That definitely was uh, the, the museum. Is, is I'm so glad you mentioned that because even from the time the trailer was released and I could see those artifacts in the cases, I knew where they were going with that. Or at least I hoped I knew um, that, because those are stolen artifacts. And there are peoples around the world still struggling to to get custody of their own history again. Uh, from these large museums. So you're right. The fact that that was actually vocalized in the scene and he's being profiled because he, you know, he's made the reference about how he'd been followed around, which is such a universal 
African American uh, experience, especially, there was just so many little little moments seeded in. Or, or one of my favorites was um, Okoye Denai Gurira having to wear that terrible wig when she was <laughs> trying to blend in uh, in the scene in Korea. And not just that she looked so bad. That could have been just a visual gag and it, we could have moved on and, and a lot of us would have gotten it. But they made even more of it. She's like, oh, it's a disgrace. And then when, the, when uh, <laughs> Nakia says, you fling it about, you know, it, I mean, how many little black girls? Uh, Whoopi Goldberg did it on Broadway. You'll put a towel on your head just to know what it would feel like as a little girl to have long European style hair before you can get your first weave or whatever. You know, I remember putting that towel on my head, trying to fling that towel over my shoulder. Everybody, every little girl, especially where we're, we're so visually oriented, wants to fit in with the outer culture. And there are few things that represent how we do not fit in than our hair. This is something that was also addressed in A Wrinkle in Time, that that relationship a black woman has with her hair. So to see those two women making fun of the wig <laughs> and then the wig is then weaponized is like, what? <laughs> it's like layers upon layers upon layers. And that's just dissecting that moment. Um, the movie is, is full of those moments. I was frankly shocked at how quickly Claw died. And I was really shocked at the way Killmonger was dragging his carcass across the plane like like he was in uh independence day and will smith dragging home the alien <laughs> i was like what it's like the the ultimate disrespect in terms of the way you treat a corpse <laughs> they did that they did that they present the dead Anthony connor um even in the trailer which i think they i i think they changed the trailer slightly from the pronunciation in the movie because when in that interrogation scene when claus says how much do you know about Wakanda? It's more like Wakanda. He has this accent that would grate me every time I heard the truth. I was mad at him and I didn't even know him yet because he wasn't saying it right. <laughs> he was saying it was like sort of a common uh, mispronunciation uh, that someone who was not from that African country might use. And it's just these little, the fact that he was an Afrikaner, the fact that he was in chains in the trailer, it was just like dripping with sort of this, unapologetic examination of those um those conflicts and that history and yeah it's a lot i mean jesse do you want to jump in here because i know you cover politics right do you have anything you want to say about the were you surprised by how how political the the movie was allowed to be oh definitely uh, i was actually having a conversation with someone earlier today about the desire for wesley snipes to do a black panther movie back in the 80s and we were talking about how cool it would have been to see the Panther back in the 80s. But I, I mentioned that I was so happy that they didn't do it because they wouldn't have been able to put those same politics that we saw in this movie on screen in the 80s. The Black Panther, a Black Panther movie in the 80s would have been completely different. We wouldn't have had... Uh, a Killmonger the way we saw him. We wouldn't have had a T'Challa the way we saw him. Um, they were able to seed so much into the, into this movie. Uh, and, and just like we, we, we were saying earlier, everyone goes into the movie and they see, they have their favorite scene. The first time we saw the movie, my wife's favorite scene was the casino fight where the wig is whipped off the head and used as a weapon. 
because we were having that same conversation about the the importance of black women's hair. Uh, and and once again, my favorite scene, just the same way, was the dragging of Claw across the plains uh, with Killmonger. I mean, because you you couldn't have seen Mm-mm. those scenes on tele on in a movie ten years ago, fifteen years ago, twenty years ago. But when you have a, a director with the success of Orion Coogler, when you have uh, a, a Chadwick Boseman and a Par Forrest Whitaker in the same movie, and you you they 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 lend a gravitas where you can explore these issues in a way that you wouldn't have been able to if you had had a different director and a different cast in a different time. Just to speak to that, um, a lot of us, I don't know if, about the rest of you, but but I was receiving, you know, some sort of troll-like uh, uh, contestation from people who were like, well, why are you so excited about Black Panther? You had Blade? What kind of thing? And I was fine with Blade. <laughs> I'm a horror fan. Uh, Blade is not something I would have taken my son to see, first of all, because it's an R-rated, uh, very sexual movie. But aside from that, Wesley Snipes is one of the few black characters, even in Blade. It's a white, I mean, you know what I mean? It's like a white world surrounding a black lead. And that is not the same thing, uh, by a long stretch. So no disrespect to Blade, but they are not even in the same area code. And to speak to that same point, um, Wesley as Black Panther back in the day would have been more like that. You know, uh, Black Panther is, is the lead, but it, I'm quite sure it would have been more like a, more like Blade in that sense, where, where it's, it's a, a white cast, majority white cast film to sort of make audiences feel comfortable and, and encourage people to go. So the fact that, um, one of the two major white leads was, was killed, or what, not even a lead, one of the two white characters was killed <laughs> off so quickly, leaving the entire responsibility to represent whites on the shoulders of Martin Freeman, who had to be told to do everything, by the way. Uh, so he was almost like the comic relief in some ways. Uh, although he does have a heroic moment when he's piloting, uh, the, uh, the ship with, with Shuri's help, but it's a, it's a very heroic moment. And I, some, I know some viewers wish that moment had gone to someone else because they were feeling like, well, why do we even need him in the movie at all? Uh, because they're just so excited to have a black cast. But it is, it was very surprising in that sense that they were willing to trust the direction of the screenwriters to cast and write it the way they saw the story rather than that traditional fear that if you have too many black folks in a movie, white audiences won't go. I mean, there are a lot of reasons that doesn't apply here, including Marvel. But let's just remember that legacy, uh, because I've been pitching in Hollywood for a long time. I've been pitching genre in Hollywood for a long time. And there have been a lot of blank faces when you pitch black uh, casts. I have, I have been to that meeting where the executive says, do the characters have to be black? And, and back in the early 2000s, I was told that film companies basically uh, on their slates might have one black project per whatever, let's say quarter. And black project to them meant Denzel starring in a mostly white film, uh, like A Man on Fire is considered a black project by old Hollywood. So he's black. So therefore that's a black project. Never mind that he probably, I don't remember who else was in the cast. He was black, but you see what I'm saying? That's, that's the mindset Hollywood was in just, it feels like the day before yesterday. 
I mean, when, when you talk about it, it couldn't have happened 15 years ago, 10 years ago. It feels like it couldn't have happened five years ago. I don't know if that's true, but it just feels like Black Panther has both helped create the moment, but is also enjoying the moment that has been in kind of a slow creation for a long time. So do you anticipate having a much different experience pitching stuff in Hollywood in the wake of Black Panther? Oh, I know. I know it's different. I mean, I um, even frankly, starting with Get Out, uh, with Jordan Peele's Get Out, I could see a difference. But but I think the difference here will be phenomenal. Uh, just as an example, this is sort of an anecdote. I, I This is not a pitch, but why not? If you're listening, <laughs> I have I have an African Immortal series. And it's been in and out of film option for decades, you know, since it first came out. It's been at Fox Searchlight. Um, actor Blair Underwood had it for a long time and, and, and got some real headway with it, but it just never quite happened. And ever since that time, conventional wisdom said, if you want to do a black genre story, meaning it's not in the hood, it's not familiar, you know, you're sort of educating as you entertain, then you want to keep the budget low. Even when it was at Fox Searchlight. We knew foot good and well. That would be like a 10 or $15 million movie. So we've written spec scripts trying to keep it at that level, about $10, $15 million, a small kind of a love story without breaking out into the wider world of the immortals and where they come from. But now the producer shopping, it is like, you know, what I'm hearing is they want bigger. They want more like Black Panther. So that scope changes from that 10 to $15 million range to something more like a $30 million range or even more. Not that he, and I'm not saying it's happened, but I, I think it will happen. And this is one of those things where, yeah, I'm out there uh, pitching and I'm out there trying to, uh, to make my footprint, but I'm also a fan. So I'm loving the fact that even before Black Panther opened, you had writers like Victor Laval, um, has his black horror series, uh, in progress and Nettie Okorafor with HBO and, um, George R. 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 Martin has her uh, series in development and Matt Johnson has his series in development. And they're just, frankly, just so many of my friends, <laughs> Dallow Hopkinson, Brown Girl Begins, Black Fantasy. So many people I know are already getting that traction. So I can't, uh, this is, this is a, a mountain, uh, rather a stone that's been rolling down the mountain, gathering strength and speed. And I definitely expect Black Panther to, to make that continue. Well, you mentioned Get Out, and I just want to – could you just tell the story about Jordan Peele planting himself in the audience in your class? I just think that's oh, cool. that was so cool because it's really like the trifecta. I think you get – you have Get Out. A year later, almost to the day, you have Black Panther, and then you have A Wrinkle in Time saying this is the time for black speculative fiction. But Jordan Peele was sort of that, that real first whiff that this wave was coming and I was so excited by, by Get Out, which I love. Um, I just thought it was such a, a, a brilliant way to discuss race relations that I said, hmm, let me break out this film from my Afrofuturism course and make it more specific, a horror course. I call The Sunken Place, Racism, Survival, and the Black Horror Aesthetic. And I am always on Twitter, uh, always. So I was tweeting about writing the class and looking at, because it's Get Out as the way to sort of be a linchpin. But it's really exploring, okay, what other black horror movies have there been? What other black fiction? So I was just tweeting happily about all the, the fun I was having creating the course. And Evan saw my tweets and he wrote a story uh, for IO9. And the very same day, this, I mean, not even the day, like within like a couple hours, it feels to me like the story came out. Monkey Pop Productions, Jordan's production company, followed me 
on Twitter and being no fool, I knew that once someone follows you, you can direct message them. So I was all <laughs> over that in terms of, hey, can Jordan come to the class? And not even two hours later, Jordan Peele himself DM'd me and was like, that would be so funny if I snuck in. Ha ha. So from like day one, he was really, I mean, I thought it was him. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes people <laughs> run other people's accounts, but it felt like he seemed really excited by the idea. And sure enough, weeks later, um, he came out to the campus. I kept it a complete secret from my class. They had been watching and studying Get Out, uh, it, starting with Birth of a Nation, like sort of for the interracial context of Get Out and stories by W.E.B. Du Bois. So they were really primed and poised. And I, and I had them watching the scene in Get Out where Rose, I'm sorry if you haven't seen it, people, but it's been out a long time. <laughs> um, Rose is not going to give Chris the keys to escape. You think she's an ally. That's the time she shows her hand and she dangles those keys and she says, you know, you're not getting these keys, babe. And my class is completely triggered by that scene. So they were wrapped that talking to the screen, you know, the whole like experience. And there was Jordan Peele. We put him, he had snuck into the back row while the lights were down. He was wearing a hoodie and a baseball cap. No, ch I mean, nobody knew, nobody knew who he was. So when I put the lights up, the class is still unaware. And I said, okay, what do you think the director was trying to say about the coveting of black bodies? And he raised his hand. I said, you in the back. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> he, and he started to say, uh, I have a question. And he stood up and these, these slow waves of recognition sort of <laughs> rolled over the class <laughs> where they started to realize who he was. And they just, it was pandemonium. I mean, one student left the room to pace the hall because she was crying. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I have to say, it's not just because he's like this famous guy they had seen on Key and Peele. It was because they had been studying this film. Um, and they were really giving him the honor of, of someone who created a masterwork. And he's in our presence. And he created this great masterwork that encompasses so much. And he's standing right here. And he answered their questions for uh, the whole class. And they asked, they asked really smart questions to the point where... When he talked about it on Stephen Colbert, he, he talked about how smart the questions were. And um, he came back again. He came back again the second quarter. That was not a surprise. So I opened it up to some film students and, and both classes. And, and Vanity Fair also came. So it was, it was more um, part of the Oscar campaign, whereas the first one was completely spontaneous. But that's why I say I feel like we, we want to take partial credit. <laughs> <laughs> because we felt like we were we were really helping the world to see why this film was special, you know, that we really believe in it. And it, it really is an important conversation to have, especially during these political times. Can you still watch that class, the Sunken Place class online? Oh, as a matter of fact, since you mentioned it, um, there was so much attention because of all the media after Jordan Peele came to the class, so many people were saying, oh, I wish I could take that class. My husband and I, who would, who had already been doing webinars for years, said, well, why don't we just do a public version? So we did. It's in the can now. So it's at a discount, but it's www.sunkenplaceclass.com. And that includes a Skype interview with Jordan Peele that he did just for the online students. I mean, you know, and that's just a handful of folks. But he was like, yeah, I'll do it. And in the middle of the Oscar run, but that's how um, I think flattered he was and also uh, just glad to understand that, that there are serious conversations going on around the film and that that legacy of black horror that it's a part of. Yeah, that's so cool. Um, I want to get Evan back in here. Um, 
I um I was re- I I don't know a lot about this, but I was just um, doing research this morning, and I came across this article on Vulture, and it's called "The Man Who Made Black Panther Cool." And the tagline says, Christopher Priest broke the color barrier at Marvel and reinvented a classic character. Why was he nearly written out of comics history? I was just curious, since you're a big fan of his, do you know yeah, yeah. more context um, about that? So that article is written by Abraham Reisman at Vulture, um, who writes a lot of great stuff about comics for for, for them. Um, yeah, Priest uh, basically uh, went through the editorial ranks at Marvel and DC. And as editorial regimes changed and times changed, you know, he found himself struggling for work and he found himself essentially um, pigeonholed as a writer who'd only get approached to write black characters, um, which, you know, uh, he wasn't interested in being pigeonholed. He wanted to do to, he wanted to step up and write uh, the major characters, Captain America, Superman, Batman. And he has touched those characters, but he's never been entrusted with a long run the same way that he was with Black Panther. Um, so after, you know, a few years of butting his head, um, against, uh, th- that horribly limiting preconception, he left writing comics, uh, for like 11 years. Um, and only came back, um, with, uh, a run on DC Comics Deathstroke, um, which he accepted in part because it's not a black character. He, he you know, he, he gets to break out of the, that conceptual cage. Um, but Priest, you know, was a groundbreaking creator, um, um, at Marvel and DC. And, you know, a lot of, uh, his work, um, has also wound up in adaptations of these major characters. Like the bit in Batman Begins where Batman goes to, uh, like a monastery to learn martial arts to help become Batman. Um, that's, that, that was seeded in stuff that Priest, um, wrote, uh, back in the 1980s. Um, you know, Luke Cage being a major character in the Marvel um, Netflix series um, is is due in part by work that Priest did on Cage. Um, uh, Priest changed his name uh, at one point of his life. Previously, he was known as Jim Owsley. And as Jim Owsley, he wrote Power Man and Iron Fist, which is a team up of Luke Cage and Danny Rand. And um, he had, you know, he gave the character a lot more depth than it had before. Um, and you know, that makes it more fertile for other writers to pick up on and then uh, get adapted in a TV show. So, you know, uh, but the thing that Priest did on Panther was, um, he told us that everything we knew about the character, um, was, uh, facade. Um, you know, the character didn't have a caretaker for, for many years, almost two decades after, um, Donald McGregor. Um, did his Panthers Rage series and other stories with T'Challa. Um, you know, the thing that happens with these companies is unless somebody is championing a character, they don't get the spotlight. Um, they don't get developed. Um, and that's what happens to T'Challa. He'd show up in various one-off appearances and, and, you know, would kind of be, uh, not as interesting as he, as he it was in his own environment, in his own book. Um, He'd show up to, for a team up, team up with Daredevil and then kind of, you know, okay, we'll see you again in a year or so, or maybe. Um, um, and, uh, T'Challa didn't have a caretaker. So as those years passed, he kind of became a vanilla character. Um, um, boring, a very kind of cookie cutter, uh, uh, idea of nobility. Um, and Priest basically blew all that up. Um, he said, we know that this man comes from the most technologically advanced country in the world. Why is he running around in a, in a, in a, in a suit with no weapons, no technology, and, and, and 
and why is that tethered to the idea of some kind of boring nobility? Um, let's give them gadgets. Let's give them a complex moral kind of conundrum to continually be de- dealing with, with being the king, keeping these countries safe, but also at the same time, uh, 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 sh- coming from a culture where the rules of engagement are very different. Um, and they're different by virtue of having to, um, be secretive and, um, you know, uh, warrior, um, uh, centric. Um, so priests basically built out the kind of thematic architecture for, um, the Black Panther and, and Wakanda in a way that, um, had never been done before. Um, and, and like the headline to, to Abe's piece said, he made him cool. He made him attractive and seductive. Um, and complicated. Um, and you know, none of the stuff that, that is happening nowadays, whether it's Tanahasi's main title, the miniseries I'm writing, the movie, none of that happens without Priest. Um, and, uh, uh, his career, I think, is a, one of the, continually one of the most underappreciated, um, um, tenures in professional comics. Well, when you're talking about T'Challa having all this responsibility and everything, that, um, makes me think of this quote I came across. This is from a Black Panther writer named Al Ewing. And he says, Spider-Man struggles with the rent. T'Challa struggles with world economics and geopolitics. Um, I know, Jesse, do you have any, do you want to take that one? Like, do you, um, is that a challenge writing T'Challa when there's such big forces at play? Well, the, the, the great thing you run into with writing T'Challa is that, is that you can deal with issues that you don't get to with the street level heroes. Cause like you said, T'Challa isn't worrying about the rent. He's worrying about whether Latveria is going to invade. He's not talking to Daredevil. He's talking to Namor and he's talking to, to Victor Von Doom. You get to deal with these worldwide crises and issues that you'd have to force a Spider-Man into, that you'd have to force a Daredevil into. Uh, you can, you can deal, I mean, the, 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 the great series Doom War, uh, with, with, dealt with Black Panther at war with Dr. Doom. I mean, you can't really do that with, uh, you can't really do that with a Spider-Man. You can't really do that with a Batman. So you get, you get to deal with these, uh, macro level issues, these macro level issues with Panther, uh, where you, that you wouldn't, with several other characters and you get to do this all from an Afrocentric point of view, which makes, which is such a cool thing about the character that you can, you can take Wakanda and say, okay, how would the United States of America really respond to a country like Wakanda once they found out it exists? A country that doesn't want anything America has to offer that can't be bribed, can't be bought and has stuff that the United States wants. How would we treat them? Um, and that's a, that, that's something that the, the type of world politics, that's something you can't really do with many other characters and which makes it a joy to write. Was it, were, were there things that you did in your novel? Do you think that you wouldn't be able to do without your background reporting politics? Oh, well, I mean, I think my, my background in politics gave me just another, another, another angle to, to, to exploit. Um, because I mean, I've been in the Pentagon, I've been in the White House, I've been, I've been inside the Capitol Hill, and I know how those places work. So I, I, I could, I could give a really good guess at how the Pentagon would react to the existence of a Wakanda. Uh, how, how, um, 
the White House would really react to to the existence of of a Wakanda. Frankly, they probably wouldn't talk to them. They they probably would ignore them completely and pretend like they didn't exist until they until they could figure out a way to overthrow it, overthrow the monarchy in, in, in Wakanda. Um, so I mean, it it gave an, I I think I was able to seed a little bit of, of more more realism and more politics into it just from being right here in Washington D.C. I mean, in the Black Panther movie, the way that um, the CIA agent interacts with Wakanda is fairly benign, right? Do you think it would actually be more fraught than that? Oh, it would be much more fraught, fraught than that. I mean, I, that, that was the one part that, that sort of didn't ring true to me, uh, that, uh, that Everett Ross and the CIA did not just go broadcast over the entire world that T'Challa and, and Wakanda existed from Captain America Civil War. Um, that, that they didn't try to, to, to extort something out of, out of, uh, out of T'Challa to keep, to keep the, keep Wakanda a secret, to keep the, the Panther a secret. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I'm not interrupting. You go. <laughs> no, um, I mean, it, it, well, I mean, I'll, I also have to say that it, it, it almost sort of didn't ring true that, that, that Wakanda had escaped the notice of the CIA completely uh, from America completely at the beginning of the movie as well, especially after Captain America's Civil War, you know that America went looking for Wakanda after that. I mean, even if they didn't know it existed, they, they knew it existed. They knew that, that they had more than what, than what T'Challa and T'Chaka had been telling them simply from Civil War, simply from the fact that the Panther existed. Should have given them a big, a big old clue, and the fact that that Everett Ross was still so friendly with the with with the Panther at the beginning of the movie that was the one part that just just the 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 the, the politics of the real world sort of sort of uh, sort of fly in the face of that. There was one hint um, of the CIA's real world legacy of destabilizing governments and kind of inserting itself in the affairs of other sovereign nations. When, when Ross says that Killmonger is just doing what we trained him to do, um, right. um, in, in Wakanda. But yeah, no, you know, definitely the CIA was positioned as a neutral good, if we're going to use, mm-hmm. um, right, right, the alignment, um, uh, chart. Uh, yeah, um, um, and we all know that the history is not exactly that, but you know, um, uh, that's one, one place where they kind of have to stick to, conventions of superhero fiction um um, at least uh in that regard but you know it's funny go ahead tenanery no 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 i thought you were done you go (laughs) you know it's funny these are the themes i'm dealing with in my series too like i said it's 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 very much tackles some the same basic idea of wakanda meeting the world and the world meeting wakanda and t'challa being in the middle of all that you know um in issue three of of resident black panther which just came out two weeks ago um, T'Challa basically invites a delegation of, of, uh, UN diplomats to, to Wakanda. He does it in secret and he doesn't even tell the Wakandan tribal council. So when, when they find out, they're pissed because Wakanda is not trying to mess with the outside world. The average Wakandan is, is xenophobic and isolationist and, and because they know the history of colonialism on the continent. Um, um, and, uh, what I have happened in issue three is the involvement of the Winter Soldier. Um, he uses that as leverage to get what he wants, um, uh, which is membership in the UN. Um, and, you know, I thought it would be a nice, um, 
role reversal for how, you know, the U.S. Um, and other Western countries have meddled with Africa. It's like, no, you think you've got the drop on us, but we were expecting this all along, and we're going to use it to our advantage. Um, so it's a nice way that, again, working in an Afrofuturist space allows you to rewrite history, um, uh, placing, you know, the black diaspora um, and African sovereignty at the center and not necessarily have it be um, an afterthought or a side effect of, of, of what's actually happened in the real world. I mean, Tanana Reeve, seems like you've been, <laughs> you have something you wanted to add. <laughs> well, on the CIA specifically, it's the one thing I wish if I could just sort of change that. It wouldn't be the CIA. I get why it is. And it was set up, obviously, that this character was in the CIA previously. It makes sense on a story level. But for people who know history, especially blacks who are, who are somewhat wary, say, of um, corporate Hollywood to tell their story, Having the CIA involved as sort of an ally and in such a benign way is kind of like, aha, <laughs> this is enemy action. Uh, so there were some people, you know, who are highly, highly political, well versed in history, who will get popped out of the bubble just on that basis. It's like, ah, why can't we, you know, and then, and then, uh, so that's the one thing that, that I would, I would change. Um, and of course, there's a lot of discussion about Killmonger and we haven't talked a lot about Killmonger. This conversation about uh, whether there should have been some sort of a rep- retribution and vengeance. And so many people on Twitter that I follow added Killmonger to their Twitter nicknames. You know, Killmonger's Bay, Killmonger's Wife, Killmonger was right. And he really strikes at the heart of uh, a sense of frustration of the helplessness that so many black populations really worldwide have been subjected to under colonialism under slavery, uh, this, this, this understandable anger at being left behind, um, that this character personally feels, but culturally, this, this deep sense of frustration at helplessness and whether striking back and how you strike back is the answer, which, which, you know, it's been a lot of, there's been a lot of water cooler conversation around it. You know, my husband and I looked at him and said, okay, he has a lot of lofty ideas about liberating black folks from around the globe, but let's look at his actions. Um, and his actions were, were, were very off-putting in terms of his treatment of women, uh, his girlfriend, the elder, burning the garden. These are, this is not, to me, a leader, right? This is not a leader. I can understand why everybody feels that he's tragic. I felt he was tragic. I'm in tears listening to his speech about bury him with the ancestors. You know, I, I totally get why there was so much excitement around Killmonger. Um, and, and also I think is a very important conversation, not whether, you know, if we had Wakandan technology, should we go bomb everybody? But, but how you can take that frustration and take that desire to liberate and use it in, in ways that are both possible and productive. One of the conversations I've had over and over about Killmonger is is his talk about liberation, but his actions were that of a conqueror. So, mm-hmm. I mean, everything he said was the right thing. Nothing he did was the right thing, though. I mean, out of all, I mean, if if his actions had matched his words, if from the point he defeated T'Challa, and assume the throne, which he could rightfully do that. Mm-hmm. If any action beyond that point had been beyond a let's go take over the world, 
then I could see a, a conflicted Wakanda on whether they wanted to follow him or not. But to, yeah. but but to decide to attack three different countries in the same day in hopes that we're going to take over the world at the, all at the same time and just massacre a bunch of people until we're in charge that you you're you're literally creating a worldwide Wakandan empire no those are the actions of a conqueror not a liberator yeah absolutely I mean, Evan, do you want to weigh in on this? Do you, do you want to say about the, the sort of presentation of this character that would lead people on Twitter to add Killmonger was right to their uh, Twitter handles? Oh, I mean, you know, Jesse, Jesse and Tanana, we basically said it all. But the thing about Killmonger is that he taps into pain. He taps into the pain yeah. of absence, uh, the, the pain of the existential pain of not knowing your roots, you know, um, mm. and how that can set you adrift. And... um and knowing that you were left behind by uh, uh, forces larger than yourself, um, you know, uh, Wakanda doesn't exist, but um, it, uh, Killmonger manages to home in on uh, a sense of rootlessness um, that is very resonant for people in the black diaspora all over the world. You know, um, even if you're on the African continent, you, there, there's no way you don't know the way that interventionism has shaped your life, you know, and, and, and that's something that is, um, almost universal, I think, for black people all over the world. Um, you know, it's one of the ways that the movie, um, works so well as a piece of superhero fiction because, um, superhero fiction operates on a larger than life scale. It's aspirational. It shows you the best of humanity, the worst of humanity, the complexity of humanity. And, you know, the fact that him, uh, Killmonger is a character that, um, makes you feel, uh, that pulls you in these two polar opposite directions, I think is, is a great way to, um, execute what's, what's good about, uh, uh, speculative fiction. Yeah. Let me add. Let me ask you, there's a line in the movie where one of the characters says, in times of crisis, the wise build bridges while the foolish build barriers. Now, I don't know how long ago this movie was conceived or the script written or anything, but it's hard for me not to see that as a commentary on Donald Trump's wall. Uh, do you guys agree with that? I would agree. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. I don't know for sure. I mean, not not knowing when the script was written, I mean, that is literally, literally a saying. So it wasn't created for this current political co- climate. So, but it just, it just seems apropos at this moment, doesn't it? I don't know if that's an actual African proverb or not. Um, I feel like I've run across it, uh, run across folks saying that it is. Um, but you know, it's the kind of truism that you want your political leaders to have, right? Um, um, and whether, you know, the thing about Donald Trump is that he's only re, reheating, he's only warming over, um, rhetoric and, and execution of white supremacy's past, right? Um, so you didn't need Donald Trump to exist for a line like that to have resonance. Um, whether he was president or not, it would still resonate. It does, it resonates more deeply now, um, that he's president. Um, and he's, and he's, and he's, you know, trying to execute an isolationist, uh, policy, uh, uh, international policy for United States right now. Um, but you know, that that that's a line about bridging the gap across differences, and 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 it works because the world has had 
um, a history of, of fractures across differences. I'm going to go out on a limb here because um, building the wall was such a centerpiece in Trump's campaign uh, that that was being discussed pretty widely at the time those lines were written in the script. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if it was an actual reference to Trump. But in any case, whether it is or not, it, it lands, you know, in this era for sure. Well, Evan, when you're talking about the, the history of white supremacy, I was, I was reading this. Um, there's a book about the history of Black Panther I read. It's called um, Black Panther, the Illustrated History of a King uh, by Dennis Culver. And he talks about there have been um, parts in the comics where Black Panther battled the Ku Klux Klan and um, apartheid in South Africa. And I was just curious for your take on how um, how uh, effective were those um, story arcs. You know, it's funny, like, yeah, to, to, to address that, you know, uh, something I've been saying uh, for a while now is that, you know, we all know the superheroes uh, that are the, the major recognizable ones. Um, we all know that they have, like, this core nugget of their heroic identity. Um, Superman is the ultimate immigrant story, right? He, he, he lands in Kansas, gets raised as a human being, and winds up representing the best ideals of humanity, even though he's technically an alien. Batman's about surviving trauma and, and uh, making yourself into something stronger and more formidable um, and, and, and trying to find empathy by making sure that nobody suffers that way you did. With T'Challa, you know, his the core of his heroic identity is very much premised on um, an anti-colonialist uh, response. Um, you know, like Stanley and Jack Kirby were two middle-aged Jewish guys um, um, in the 1960s who, you know, didn't necessarily have uh, thoughts about, uh, African sovereignty at the fore. Um, but, you know, even in their kind of like relatively unsophisticated, um, mode of creativity, they, they hit on this idea that, that, yeah, a, a place in Africa, um, that was never colonized, um, never discovered would have symbolic power, uh, quote, unquote, discovered, I should say. Um, so yeah, then it becomes, uh, the T'Challa, uh, from his very earliest stories, becomes a character where you can address like racism, um, institutional racism, and personal racism. Um, you know, he becomes a character where you can talk about uh, the legacy of, of European interventionism on, on the African continent and 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 why it's messed things up. Um, you know, uh, uh, I think it's something that a lot of black superhero characters have been used to deal with, sometimes in heavy-handed ways, but. Um, um, I think some of the best examples of those stories were uh, were told with the Black Panther. I mean, Jesse, you said you read all the the Black Panther comics, right? Do you want to add anything there? Well, well, yeah, and I have to say that as a longtime reader, that's one of the frustrations, and also one of the joys of reading the black characters as written in comic books that they do deal with some of the issues that are going on. Uh, currently in America, whether you're dealing with, you're talking about rage and the Avengers and the idea of being the token, same way they did with Sam, Sam Wilson. Uh, and, and you have the, the issues of the, of apartheid and racism being used with Black Panther. But the frustration comes when that's all they use these characters for. That all, that's all you see. That, that would seem to be the only reason why Rage existed during his run in the Avengers, so they could talk about this one issue with this character, and after that issue is resolved in that storyline, the character's useless. The same way, you, you could say the same thing about Triathlon 
in the Avengers. They use him to, use, to do that same uh, token racism story and membership uh, story, diversity story with the Avengers. But after that story is resolved, it seemed like the character is sort of forgotten about. Um, so it, it's great to see those stories explored with black characters in comic books, but that can't be the only thing you do with them, or they truly do become the token characters. The great thing about Panther is that his stories have been about more than just the race story that they want to tell at that, that moment. They've also, you've also get the stories of, of, of family and royalty and international politics. But unlike, like I said, unlike some of the other team, uh, African or, or minority characters on, in other teams, it seemed like those race stories were all they did with them. Well, well, when you're talking about family and royalty, I mean, one of my very few criticisms of this movie was that I had a little trouble believing that this, that such a technologically advanced, sophisticated, um, society would still be sort of a, this hereditary monarchy that has the trial by combat to determine who the monarch is. Um, and I think it's a, it's, it's sort of a, a theme in the comics, right? That they're kind of moving away from that. And how does, how does Wakanda transition to a republic? Um, I don't know, can you say more about that? Yeah. Tanahasi is, uh, dealt with that in his first story arc, um, which was called a nation under her feet. And it was very much about like, okay, we're the most advanced country in the world. Why do we still have a monarchy? And does T'Challa still want to be a king? And, and if so, why? Um, I think, you know, part of it is the idea of tradition. You know, I, uh, what, the way I always describe what appeals to me about T'Challa is that he's a character who stands at the crossroads between tradition and modernity. You know, he's got this long, um, um, glorious past of, of, uh, his, his ancestors who've kept Wakanda, uh, sovereign and safe and hidden. Um, and he, he obviously wants to extend that tradition. But in order to extend that tradition, in, in my series, he has to break it, right? He has to, okay, he has to decloak Wakanda because he feels like that's ultimately what's going to be best for Wakanda and to hold on to some of what they've represented and what they've been. Um, so I think things like that that are traditional are hard to let go of, even then, even when we know that the world is evolved around us. Um, things like that can be uh, tough to let go of. And it, it's, it's part of what you have to have um, the character reckon with his own past and how to evolve it. And I feel like, um, yeah, the tribe by combat is a piece that they didn't address, but uh, my favorite scene in the movie is when he goes back to the ancestral plane the second time and he talks to his father and he says, why didn't you bring the boy home? You know, and he asks Zuri the same question before he goes back to the ancestral plane. Like, you know, I, w I was led to believe we had this glorious history that we were always, you know, noble and just and you have to confront the fact that no uh governments don't always work like this um um they're they're moral um tough moral decisions and sacrifices that have to be made i'd like to to throw in um sort of a a note of thanks to uh to ryan coogler in this film in its depiction really the film almost could have been called wakanda <laughs> as much as black <laughs> panther because of the generous sharing of uh, screen time between T'Challa and Okoye and Nakia and Shuri, uh, especially. But also we get Angela Bassett, who is like our queen in black cinema. This is a real, to me, it was a love letter to, to women as much as, as it was to the heroism of T'Challa and Black Panther um, in some ways that as a woman, I just found so stirring beyond the wig thing, uh, the, the, the warrior aspect of the Dora Milaje, bringing out 
all of the best of what had come from from the comics, you know, Shuri and the Dora Milaje. We had seen a glimpse of it in Civil War with Florence Kasumba as Io, move or be moved. And gentlemen, I don't know if I can express how excited we as black women were just for that one line of dialogue. I had a colleague say, I don't know if I can go to work tomorrow after Io said that. Um, so to have that unpacked in just such a brilliant way uh, with so much strength between those women characters was a singular experience that in a lot of ways ri- almost rivaled the, the racial aspect of the story. Yeah, well, when you talk about how the movie could have been called Wakanda, I mean, I heard that Ryan Coogler has a 500-page Bible of all the details he's worked out about Wakanda, which is an incredibly intriguing thing. So I don't know if that's ever going to become public, but uh, I hope it will. So rich and, and inclusive and just uh, just a joy. All right, so we're pretty much out of time, I guess. Does anyone have any just any final thoughts they want to throw in at the end here? Ladies first. Hmm. Well, that was my final thought, really. Um, more, more, more. I know a lot of people are going to see uh, Infinity War just so they can see more Wakanda. And I understand there's a, a, a significant amount of Wakanda in it. I mean, as much as you can hear anything from such a, a leak-proof set. <laughs> or, but anyway, that Wakanda will figure prominently uh, in some way in the film. We can see that in the trailers. And uh, I just hope that... that it doesn't get carpet bombed, I guess. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> uh, Jesse, final thought? Yeah, just uh, uh, I'll echo that we just we need to see more of of this character on, on not only on the screen, but but on on I would love to see something on television and I'd love to see more prose and comic books uh, about that tell talks about this world that we so love. So uh, more, more, more. Yeah, I echo more, more, more. <laughs> All right, and Evan, final final word. Um, you know, uh, I think right now is a is a wonderful moment for Black Panther in multiple media, and to echo, you know, what everybody else said more and more more. And I'm glad to be contributing to some of that moreness. Um, there are great Black Panther comics out right now. Uh, um, um, you know, I'm not going to include my own, but I will say that Rise of Black Panther is coming out now um, from Marvel Comics, but there's such a great world to dive into, um, and that you know, uh, no matter your level, your age level, um, your age range, or your level of sophistication, you're probably going to find something great about this character, um, um, and I'm really excited to see how people latch onto it, and, um, and, and, and love it as much as I do. All right, great. So we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Evan Narciss, Tanana Reeve Dew, and Jesse J. Holland. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you, David. And that was our panel. So a big thanks again to Evan Narciss, Tanana Reeve Dew, and Jesse J. Holland for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Alexander Frenzel, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Leonard Tatangia, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via check. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, 
and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.